the way. Maybe it's even so dramatic you even wondered at one point or another in your life, maybe the Lord is calling me to serve Him in ministry. Well, every now and then I get people who will ask me about that issue. They'll ask me about that subject. Exactly what does it take to be equipped to serve God in a significant way? What sort of preparations do I need to make? And usually when they're asking me that question, they're asking me about schooling or their background or the education necessary to be used by God. Would it surprise you to learn that the most important issue when it comes to serving God in a significant way is not the preparations that we make for that, as much as the preparation that God desires to do in us for that great work. In the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, listen to the Apostle Paul and his perspective on on what made him adequate for the ministry. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 4 says this, And we have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. You see, the Apostle Paul believed that his adequacy, his equippedness for ministry, wasn't something that you could learn in any school. It was something that you could receive from God and God alone. Now, that raises a major question. Exactly what does it mean to be equipped by God for service? What is that good work that the Lord desires to do all about in our hearts and in our lives? Well, tonight, in our continuing study in the book of 1 Samuel, and 1 Samuel, beginning at the end of chapter 9 and moving through chapter 10, we're going to see God's preparatory work for service painted out on a very unusual and unlikely canvas, the life of a man named Saul. And as we see how God prepared Saul to assume the ministry of kingship over an entire nation for his glory, we'll see some standard and eternal principles that God uses to prepare us for the good works that he has ordained for us before the foundation of the world. We'll see, first of all, God's work of edification, the mental preparation that God desires to do in our lives to get us ready to serve him in a significant way, some very important lessons that we need to have up here if we're going to be effective in our service. Secondly, we'll see God's work of transformation, that God desires to change us and prepare us spiritually to serve Him. And that really, more important than just having head knowledge is to have that heart knowledge of the true and living God. And finally, we'll see God's work of confirmation, how God prepares us personally, to serve Him. How God lets us know that He Himself has laid His hand of blessing upon us and is calling us to a particular area. If you've ever wondered, is the Lord really calling me to serve Him? Is He really calling me to a particular area? We'll learn a thing or two about how to discern the Lord's will and the Lord's call tonight. Let's pray and ask the Lord to open our understanding to this crucial area. And perhaps tonight, God is going to speak to your heart about an area of service that He has set aside for you for His glory. Father, we thank You that on this night when we're gathering together to celebrate communion, Lord, Your finished work on our behalf, Lord, we thank You that the work that You do in us is an ongoing one. We thank You for the promise in Philippians 1.6 that You who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And it's not so much what we do for you that counts, as much as it matters what you do inside us, in us and through us, Lord. We want to be open to that gift. We want to be open to that calling, Lord. And my prayer is that there would be many out here tonight who would hear your voice, who would understand what your guidance is, that you would perhaps even show them specifically an area of ministry that you are calling them to that will be fruitful and and can bring glory to your name. Thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. We love you, and we just pray that you would speak to our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've been with us in our study in the book of 1 Samuel, you know that God 
has a unique way of calling sometimes the most unlikely people to the most outstanding works. If there was ever an unlikely person to be called to the role of being the leader of Israel, Israel's king, it had to be this individual that we are introduced to in these chapters, a fellow named Saul. Oh, sure, he had the physical attributes that would make him look kingly. He was head and shoulders above anybody else in Israel. Virtually everybody physically looked up to him. But we discovered in our study that personally and emotionally, And as far as his own giftedness goes, and even his own assessment of himself, he had a long ways to go. In 1 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 21, when the news was broken to him that he was going to be the next king of Israel, Saul answered Samuel and replied, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak like this to me? Well, Samuel looked at himself and said, look, you're obviously barking up the wrong tree. You're talking to the wrong person if you think that God has a special plan for me. But God delights in using uh, perhaps what we might call discarded material to use for His best and fullest and most exciting works. And Saul fit that description entirely. And so God was going to begin this work. God was going to begin to prepare Saul for this amazing job of being the first king of Israel. And this preparation begins in earnest in 1 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 25. That's where we pick things up tonight. There we read, when they had come down from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on the top of the house. They arose early, and it was about the dawning of the day that Samuel called to Saul on the top of the house, saying, Get up, that I may send you on your way. And Saul arose, and both of them went outside, he and Samuel. Now, here we see what I believe is one of the first tools that God uses to prepare us for a significant work. It's a connection. It's a human relationship where one person's walk with God hopefully rubs off on another. Here you see Samuel, a man who walked faithfully with the Lord, entering into what we would call discipleship with this man, Saul. And Saul really didn't know much about God. He hadn't really expressed much of a desire for the things of God. And so he had an awful lot to learn from a guy like Samuel. Now, one thing I've discovered in serving the Lord is that if we're going to serve the Lord and serve the Lord effectively, human role models are something that God uses in powerful ways. Now, granted, we have to be careful who we pattern ourselves after. You know, it's very easy sometimes to pick a person whom God has used in a dramatic way and pattern yourself after that. When I was at Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, I taught a class in sermon prep. And one of the funniest things that you would see in this class was it wasn't so much a class on sermon giving as in like these guys studying the Word and and doing something new and fresh and different as much as it was almost a class in being Chuck Smith imitators. I mean, they would stand up and they would talk real deep with their voice, you know, and they do Chuck's gestures. You know, we always call this one unscrewing the mayo jar, you know, and everything was fascinating and all that. And I would stop them about halfway when I'd hear them go into all this and say, no, 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 wait a minute. I know what Chuck has taught about this passage. What I want to hear from is what God has given you to share in this passage. Well, it's not all bad wanting to pattern your life after a guy like Chuck Smith. God uses us all individually and in very unique ways, to be sure. But oftentimes, we can avoid reinventing the wheel. If we lead ourselves into relationships with those whose walk with God we want to emulate. In the book of Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7, we see the value of this in a scriptural sense. Hebrews 13 and verse 7 says, Remember those who rule over you, who've spoken the Word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. What the Scripture says is that all of us need to have someone who is building into our lives. In fact, I've come to believe that really every believer needs to have two key relationships going on at all times, if we're really going to be hitting on all cylinders for the glory of God. All of us need to have a Timothy in our lives, someone that we can build into, a younger believer that we can kind of take under our wing 
and show the things of God and show what it means to walk with the Lord. But we also need to have a Paul in our life, someone who has gone around the block a few more times, someone who's seen a few more things, someone whose study in the Word has grown deeper over time than ours would be. And so if you have that input and you have that outflow, you're going to be a very healthy Christian. Now, if all you have is input, well, chances are you're just going to get overflowing and, and, and bloated. You know, the Dead Sea in Israel has nothing but input. It has no outflow. And, and so nothing lives in it. If on the other side of the coin, all you've got is outflow in your lives and you're not getting any input, well, you know the old saying, you can't give out of an empty bucket. We need to have both. And that's what Samuel was offering to Saul right off the bat. That was a tool that God was using to prepare this man for his ministry. Notice as well, in verse 27, there was another step of preparation for Saul that we see described here. Verse 27 says, As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to go on ahead of us. And he went on, But you stand here a while that I may announce to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? Now here we see Saul consecrated for the ministry that God had for him. Very interesting ceremony, wasn't it? Probably something very shocking to Saul. Here this prophet Samuel comes and he takes out this flask of olive oil and he dumps it literally over Saul's head. Well, we could go into a very elaborate study of the symbolic meaning behind this, but suffice it to say, we put it all together, we discover that this anointing with olive oil, this pouring forth of olive oil on someone from the head so it would drip on down literally to their toes, was an external picture of something that God would do in an invisible and an internal way in the life of believers. It's a picture of the filling of the Holy Spirit. And you know, that is one truth that God desires to drive home to us. Unless God's Holy Spirit not only indwells us as believers, but comes upon us as believers to empower us to serve the Lord, hey, you and I are spinning our wheels. If we think that we can do anything eternal in our own human strength, we're kidding ourselves. Jesus Himself drove this point home to His disciples in the book of Luke chapter 24. When Jesus was appearing to His disciples following His resurrection, He had a very interesting piece of advice for them. In verse 44 of Luke 24 we read, Then He said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms concerning Me. And He opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Now, for the most part, we might stop at verse 48 and say, Man, these disciples have everything they need to turn the world upside down. Hey, they've seen the resurrected Christ. I mean, Thomas himself was so overwhelmed by this that he fell on his knees before Jesus and said, My Lord and my God, when Jesus invited him literally to put his finger in the nail prints in his hands and his hand in his side where the cruel Roman pike had gashed that hole within him. I mean, you talk about a life-changing experience. That was a life-changer. Notice as well, Jesus opened their understanding to the Word. A lot of churches would say, boy, if you understand the resurrection and you understand the Word of God, you've got everything going for you. Man, Jesus just should have turned them loose. And notice what He says to them in verse 49. Behold, I send the promise of My Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Hey, they understood the Scriptures. They had a full and complete grasp of the reality of the risen Christ. But the one thing they needed, the one thing that was absolutely essential if they were going to be effective in ministry, was the coming upon power of the Holy Spirit. If you want to be used effectively in ministry, understand this. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not just something for the super spiritual. It is something that each and every one of us as believers desperately needs. 
We need to be clothed with that power from on high. And so many times we get involved in ministries and we try to do it in our own strength. And have you ever started to try to serve God and initially you were excited and enthusiastic, but you found over time that, that well, you pretty much got tired of things, you got a little exasperated with things, things got hard, and pretty soon you felt kind of burnt out? Well, that's a very common thing. It happens to a lot of people. But you know what it's symptomatic of? I know what it's symptomatic of in my life. It's symptomatic of trying to do a spiritual work without the power of the Holy Spirit. Before you try to do anything for God, if you have a desire, if you have an ambition to be used by God, stop and say, Lord, I need Your Holy Spirit. How do you get the Holy Spirit? (laughs) Well, Luke chapter 11 and verse 11 tells us everything we need to know. Jesus there said, how much more will Your Heavenly Father Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask for Him. Have you asked today for the filling of the Holy Spirit? Have you asked for that clothing with power from on high that you might serve the Lord? It's absolutely essential. And that's the second step that Saul went through in his preparation and his training. But the third step that we see here in terms of getting Saul mentally ready to assume this role as the next king of Israel is an extremely interesting one. In fact, it's a very gracious one, I believe, from God's point of view. Because here we see God literally granting Saul a series of signs to confirm the fact that he, in fact, had called him to this role. Look at verse 2. Samuel, speaking to Saul, said, When you've departed from me today, you'll find two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys which you went to look for have been found. And now your father has ceased caring about the donkeys and is worrying about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go forward from there and come to the terebinth tree of Tabor. There are three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you, one carrying three young goats, another one carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall receive from their hands. After that, you shall come to the hill of God, where the Philistine garrison is. And it will happen when you have come there to the city, that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a stringed instrument, a tambourine, a flute, and a harp before them, and they will be prophesying. Now, interestingly, Samuel gives to Saul three predictions, three things he would encounter that would ensure Saul that he was, in fact, God's chosen. Now, when I was studying this this week, a question kept running through my mind. Okay, Saul is first going to encounter someone who comes up and tells him about his father's concern for him. Secondly, he's going to run into somebody who's going to offer him some bread. And thirdly, he's going to come across a group of prophets that are prophesying and that he would join them. Now, why of all the possible signs that God could give to Saul that he was really going to be his man. Why do you suppose these three signs were chosen? Well, i got to admit to you, for quite a while studying this, I was drawing a blank. I just thought, well, okay, God, you can do whatever you want to do. And some of the commentaries I read on it said, well, you know, God did do whatever he really wanted to do, and we really don't know why. But you know, as I was praying and thinking about this, suddenly it became really clear One of the things that oftentimes sets people aside from really being used by God is a simple two-word question that they can't answer. Oh, I'm not talking about the answers to tough questions that skeptics ask or, or dealing with people who are enmeshed in some kind of a cult. I'm talking about something that's far more personal when it comes to serving God. Simple two-word question. What about? (laughs) Have you ever started to want to serve God, and then the whatabouts started to get at you? Well, okay, I could serve God, but what about my finances? How are those going to be taken care of? What about my family? You know, what, what about even my fitness for the job? I mean, what if I get knee-deep in all of this and I find myself in way over my head? What am I going to do then? And a lot of times, that simple two-word question, what about has sidelined more people from fruitful service to God than you can shake a stick at. 
Now, interesting then, in that light, look at these three signs that God gave. The first sign, someone coming and saying, you know, your father's donkeys have been found. That was the mission, remember, that Saul went out originally when he ran into Samuel. And now he's wondering about you. I believe that God chose that sign because he was saying to, to uh, Saul in no uncertain terms, you're worried about your family? Don't worry about your family. I'll take care of your family. Let me tell you something. That was a real live issue for me when I got involved with ministry, especially when I made the choice to become a senior pastor. You know, I have served in ministry since 1981. And during that time, a good chunk of my ministry experience has been in youth and in college ministry. And sad to say, my experience has been that oftentimes the coldest, the deadest, the most unreachable people for Christ I have ever encountered are people who were raised in ministry families. Preacher's kids, missionary kids. I, I, I can tell you some real tragic stories of people whose hearts were really damaged by the fact that when push came to shove, their parents chose the work of God rather than the work that God wanted to do within their families. And I'll tell you honestly, when we prayed about coming out and starting this church, that was a big prayer in my mind. Lord, I could be a senior pastor, but I've seen so many senior pastors who become hopeless workaholics. And, and you know, it's kind of like the old saying, you know, the doctor's kids are the sickest on the block and it's the carpenter's house that's always falling apart down the street. I said, Lord, I just don't want to get into ministry if it's going to cost the spiritual welfare of my family. And you know, the Lord just really spoke to my heart. He goes, you keep first things first. You make sure that your family knows, not by your words, but by your actions, that they are the most important thing to you. You understand that your first ministry is in the home, and I'll take care of the rest. Hey, I have no idea whether Sean and Sarah are just going to have this unbroken magic carpet ride of fellowship through life and their relationship with God. I have no guarantees of that. But I do have the guarantee that if you train up a child in the way he should go, when he is old, he will not depart from it. My job is to plant seeds in their young hearts. My job is to be a model of Christ before them. My job is to let them know that there is nothing and no one that I love more than them, and then God will take care of the rest. I have to leave them in God's hands. Sometimes we say, well, I can serve God, but what about my family? You give your family to God. You walk in a way that honors God, but you trust God to do the work in your family's heart. Notice the second thing. They're out there wandering along, and then these people come up with all these provisions and supplies, and they just give Saul this bread. The second sign there, I believe that's that financial concern that God can answer. <laughs> Let me tell you, when we started this church, that was a biggie. Uh, you know, I've never started a church before. I, I, don't, I really didn't know how things were going to work. And I had this classic conversation with my dad when we made the decision to come out and start this fellowship. It was really hilarious. Because my dad is a lawyer and he is trained to look at the worst case scenario. And so, when he heard that we were actually starting a church, you know, I mean, to his way of thinking, the last church that was started was during the Reformation, so that seems strange enough. But when he heard we were starting a church, he said, well, okay, uh, you've got a church building and everything, you know, Calvary Chapel has provided you a church building and all of that, and you're just going to move on into that, right? I said, no, no, we don't even have a place to meet yet. And he looked at me funny and said, oh. So, well... Um, you got a group of people out there waiting for you, right? I mean, they're all organized and together and you can just you know, hit the ground running with their support, right? I said, nope, nope. I, I just really have no idea who's going to show up when we open the doors or if anybody's going to show up. And he kind of got that dadly look on his face. I think the last time I saw it was when he was teaching me to drive. Like, oh boy, here we go. And he goes, well, then you've got a job lined up you know, so you can meet your family's needs while you're out there. And I said, no, no, I don't. Well, just exasperated. He looked at me and says, well, how in the world are you going to make it? And I said, Dad, I don't think the world's got anything to do with it. I really believe that God is involved with this. And it was a step of faith. And I mean, I felt very bold and very courageous and very dramatic saying that. But when I was walking away, I was going, yeah, what about all of that? <laughs> I'm here to tell you. 
God meets your need every step of the way. You don't have to worry about these things. Now, I'm not counseling that you be irresponsible or sit there and say, well, I'm just going to be like Elijah and wait for the Ravens to bring me winning lotto tickets to pay for my finances. But where God guides, God provides. If God calls you to be involved in an area of ministry and it means, say, not taking the overtime that you usually take at work, God's going to make that up to you. If you get involved in an area of ministry, who knows, maybe even God calling you to a full-time ministry. Maybe there are even some out here tonight whom God is going to raise up and lead to be pastors someday. And you find yourself saying, well, how in the world are we going to make it? I'll tell you, God's resources are incredible. And you know, it's not like we walked out here and suddenly there was a bank account with all this money in it. Sometimes there were times where we looked at each other and we were like, how are we going to make it? I don't know. But there's always enough. There's always enough. God always gives you just enough to make the right, the next step. And finally, how about your fitness to serve God? You know, I've been through seminary, and, and that's a blessing, but sometimes it's a curse, because when you go through seminary and you have a three-year master's degree in theology and biblical languages, you know, it's been said, and I think accurately so, that it takes you three years to get through seminary and about three years to get over it. Because when you get out, you think you've got all the answers. You think you've got everything all figured out. And then after three years, you come to the sad conclusion that not only don't you have everything figured out, you don't have anything figured out. You have no idea what you're doing. I remember when I first got involved with ministry, I thought, oh Lord, you know, it'd be great to be in ministry, but what if someone comes to me with problems that I, I have no idea about? What if they have these deep-seated issues in their lives that I don't have answers for? And what if there's just these overwhelming things and these crises that happen that are just you know, beyond my wisdom? And suddenly it dawned on me, that's exactly why God had me in ministry. Because I'm not anyone's answer. But I know who is. I can't solve anybody's problems. I can't heal anybody's heart. And neither can you. But Jesus Christ can. And Jesus Christ does. The best thing that we can do in ministry is not point people to ourselves, but point people to the Lord. And so, the successive series of signs starts taking on a real clarity, I believe. What God was saying to Saul, and I think what God is saying to us by extension, is this. Don't worry about your finances. Don't worry about your family. Don't worry about your fitness to lead. You trust me, and all of these things are going to come together. What did Jesus Himself say? Famous scripture, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. We even set it to music and sing it. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things, what things? The material things of this world, the, the things that the Gentiles so eagerly seek, all these things will be added unto you. I saw a great bumper sticker today. The best things in life aren't things. <laughs> it's really true. And God will make sure your things are all taken care of if you seek the things that are better than things. You seek the things of God. Notice as well, another thing that Samuel was going to tell Saul, not only was he going to have these encounters, one right after another, that were going to be a confirmation to him that God was literally looking over his shoulder and tapping him on the shoulder and saying, hey, God, you're the guy. But notice it was going to get even pers- more personal. Verse 6 says this, Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now, very interesting. What God was saying to Saul is this, look, you're not the man for the job, but put your heart in my hands and I will make you into that man. I will transform your life. I will make you new from the inside out. And as we're going to see, God did that and did that Dramatically. Notice as well in verses 7 and 8, another very interesting thing that God lays out. Not only this provision of God, not only the process that God was going to do within His heart to make Him a new man from the inside and out, but also a practical response He was going to give to Saul as a result. Verses 7 and 8 says this, And let it be when these signs come to you that you do as the occasion demands, for God is with you. You shall go down before me to Gilgal, and surely I will come down to you to offer bird offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait, 
until I come to you and show you what you should do. Now here I believe is summed up for us the most important intellectual truth that you and I have to get under our belts if we're going to be used in ministry. This whole principle of edification. What is God trying to teach us to make us effective in ministry? One thing, and it's this. You and I have to depend on God. You and I have to depend on the Lord. Notice what God is going to call Saul to do. He's saying, I'm going to send you down to Gilgal and you've got to wait seven days for Samuel to show up. Ah, waiting. Waiting. Isn't that the toughest thing that we are ever asked to do in this life? Have you ever found yourself stuck in the midst of one of those classic Southern California traffic jams? You know what a drag waiting really is. And you know how the pressure can build on you when all you can do is wait. You've done everything you can possibly do. There's nothing you can do to speed things along. All you can do is wait. You know, I think those frustrating times when all we can do is wait for the work of God are the times when God does the most wonderful works in us. And boy, time after time, I've heard story after story of, of people who are called, just like Saul, to wait for the Lord, to wait on the Lord. And that waiting was almost the make or break point in their ministry in trusting God. You know, there's a Calvary pastor in Florida named Bob Coy. Bob was sent down to Florida. Really, there weren't a lot of Calvary chapels in Florida when Bob went down there. And he started a church. And, and although I don't know Bob all that well personally, I'm good friends with Odin Fong, who was in charge of the Calvary Chapel Outreach Fellowship Office, which was in charge of sending people out to start churches. And Odin told me the story of Bob going down to Florida. And he went down to Florida and he started this Calvary Chapel. And for five years, Bob's Calvary Chapel grew to no more than 30 to 50 people. Grand total. That's it. And if you've ever had the opportunity to hear Bob on the radio, he is probably one of the funniest and most gifted speakers in the Calvary Chapel movement. He is just a crack up. He's sort of like Dana Carvey if he was saved. I mean, he comes across just that way. And so it wasn't a question of his lack of giftedness or his lack of commitment or they didn't have a testimony. He just he was saved out of incredible things in, in the whole culture of Las Vegas. But, but here he is and he's serving away for five years and nothing's really happening. And he called my friend Odin and he said, look, I, I've had it, you know. I, it just it doesn't look like it's going to go. It just doesn't look like it's going to take. You know, how about if I come back to Las Vegas or we go somewhere else like that? But uh, I just don't think this is the place. And Odin said, well, look, God's giving you 35 or 50 people, right? What's going to happen to them if you leave? Well, why don't you just stay still there and, and just shepherd them? Give it another year. And if it doesn't take in another year, then, you know, we'll, we'll just revisit the whole thing. And Bob sighed deeply and said, all right, I'll give it another year. In that year his fellowship went from 35 people to over 1,000. One year. In the subsequent year, it doubled again. And after that, it just took off. Now Bob Coy pastors a church in Florida well over 12,000 members. Let me ask you a question. What would have happened to that work if Bob Coy had thrown in the towel at year five? He'd said, no, nah, I guess it's just not going to happen here. God's obviously not up to anything. Oftentimes, when God is going to do great works, what He's saying is, be patient. Wait. Be faithful. Not because somehow the ground had to be prepared or, or you know, that Bob had to figure out the right techniques or something. I, don't be I believe that God could have caused that church just to grow from the get-go. But I believe that God had things to do in Bob's heart that He could do no other way than through the crucible of patience. It's about patience. James chapter 1, verse 4, Let patience have its perfect work, which may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. Saul was only going to have to deal with seven days of that. Unfortunately, we're going to see in chapter 14 of 1 Samuel, he's going to flunk that test with flying colors. But it's a real fork in the road. 
God wants us to depend on Him. And God will put us in a place where intellectually we'll understand that. Maybe even practically we'll come to understand that, but even more importantly, personally we'll understand that the most important thing that we can do to be prepared for God's greatest works is to wait on the Lord. Remember what Isaiah 40 says about that? They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Wait, I say, on the Lord, the Scripture declares. Very important thing for us to understand. And that was a lesson that God was teaching Saul. But more than just teaching him some truths intellectually, God was going to work on his life in a transformational way. And we see this in verse 9. Notice what it says. So it was when he had turned his back to go from Samuel that God gave him another heart. And all those signs came to pass in that day. Now notice the first thing that happened to Saul. God gave him another heart. Now notice, God didn't give him another heart because he devoted himself to some step-by-step program that created this new heart in him. God gave him a new heart supernaturally, instantly. He was changed. He was transformed into a brand new person. Not from the outside in, but from the inside out. Boy, this is such a crucial thing that we have got to understand in the whole realm of ministry. Again, in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, one of the most important things that we have to understand about serving the Lord is that when we serve the Lord, it's not just for the benefit of the people that we're serving. It is also because God desires to do a transforming work in us. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said about his experience with this principle. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16 says, Therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. See, this is the real rub. This is the real difficult thing about a true relationship with God versus religion. You ever wonder why religion is so popular? Because religion says, here's some external things that you can do to earn and merit God's favor. Here are all these principles, and if they're properly applied in your life, and you do this and this and this, then, then this will happen. You know, that kind of thinking is, is just widespread in this world. People say, well, if I do my prayers like this, and, and if I knock on enough doors, and, and if I put something in the tithe box, then God will save me. And that's why religion is so popular, because we can look at it and we can see what's going on. But God's not interested in religion, you understand. Religion will never bridge the gap between a holy God and a sinful man. God is only interested in a relationship with Him. And that relationship is only possible, understand this, if you and I are transformed from the inside out. We need a new heart. We don't need new things to do. We need a new heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 says this, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. That's the transforming work that God desires to do in you and in me. And it's a personal work to be sure, but it's also a personal work that has a public outflow. Look what happens to Saul as soon as he receives this new heart. Verse 10 says, When they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him. Then the Spirit of God came upon him and he prophesied among them. And it happened when all who knew him formerly saw he indeed prophesied among the prophets that the people said to one another, What is this that has come upon the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Then a man who was there uh, answered and said, But who's their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? And when he had finished prophesying, he went to the high place. Now, very interesting. Here we see Saul given this inward transformation by God. But suddenly this inward transformation becomes so visible, it even becomes controversial. 
Saul finds himself prophesying along with this group of prophets. And his buddies, his homeboys, the people who knew him from knee-eye to a grasshopper, go, whoa, time out. This guy, Saul, who was never interested in spiritual things, is suddenly speaking the Word of God to people. He's hanging out with these prophet guys. Is Saul also among the prophets? Maybe you've had someone say something very similar to that. No, you're not one of them, are you? You're not one of those born-again people, are you? And a lot of times it's not very complimentary, is it? It's kind of like, we liked you better the old heathen way. But now you're this different person and the difference in your life is showing. You know, oftentimes people will say to me, well, you know, I'm a Christian, but it's a personal thing. What they're really saying is, I'm a Christian and I live my life in such a way that no one will ever know it. <laughs> yeah, i got to confess, a little of that attitude has, has been present in me. Um, not in every area of my life, but certainly an area where I devote significant time every day in my driving. You know? People will say, you know, well, I, I've seen your car and I know you have a fish on the back of your car, a Calvary Chapel dove on the back of your car. And I'm kind of like, yeah, there's a reason for that. <laughs> I just don't feel my driving is quite sanctified enough that I really want to put a label on what I'm doing out there on the road. You know what I mean? But God kind of convicted me about that. Not that I have to go around and, you know, plaster the back of my car with bumper stickers or something like that. But God convicted me and, and I made a decision. I got a new car uh, fairly recently and, and I went down to the Department of Motor Vehicles and I ordered the vanity plate. And it says C-L-V-R-Y. And there it is on the back of my car now. Calvary. So now, you see, every time I get in my car, I have to stop and think, okay, I'd really like to honk at that person in front of me, but when I pass them and spray gravel in front of them, they're going to see that that came to them courtesy of Calvary Chapel, so I can't do that anymore. See, what the Lord convicted me on was it's about time that that inward work of God began to manifest itself even when I'm on the road. And you know, your relationship with God, I do believe it's a personal thing. And I do believe it's a private thing. But understand this. If you have personally and privately, and catch this word, sincerely come into a relationship with the true and living God, if He is dwelling in your heart through faith, it's going to show up in every area of your life. You see, Saul would have liked it better if he could have kept it kind of hidden under a bushel basket, you know. But there he was among the prophets. And some people were saying, well, that's a good thing. And other people were saying, oh, you know, uh, I mean, if, if this guy's a prophet, man, the standards for being a prophet have really taken a downhill turn. That's why that unusual line is there in verse 12. And the man there answered and said, but who is their father? Uh, there's a lot of different views about exactly what that obscure statement means. But I think the one that makes the most sense is this. Hey, who's the father of the prophets? Who calls people to be prophets? Isn't it God? God wants Saul to be a prophet. That's God's business. Just let him alone and we'll see if it's real over time. And I think that's probably a pretty wise thing to say. Now look at verse 14. Very interesting. The Holy Spirit has come upon this guy, Saul. He has given him a new heart. This new heart is beginning to manifest itself in his life. But interestingly enough, after these two tremendous blessings, Saul almost does kind of what we do. The three steps forward, two steps back, Samba. Then Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, where did you go? So he said, uh, to look for the donkeys. When we found that they were nowhere to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, tell me please what Samuel said to you. Boy, talk about an open door for a little witnessing. Now Saul gets to be an evangelist, right? Well, look what he says. So Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom, he did not tell him what Samuel had said. <laughs> hey, you know, that's really interesting insight here. You ever hear people who kind of trade in half-truths? You know, they don't tell you the whole story, but they tell you enough of the truth so that it kind of, uh, you know, makes their conscience feel better. They haven't told you an out-and-out -out lie, but they haven't told you everything about what's going on. Well, here we see that half-truths are really half-lies. 
because his uncle said, hey, what did the guy say to you? And, oh, yeah, he said something about donkeys. He also told me about being the king of Israel, but we won't get around to that. You see, Saul had fallen flat on his face. Why? He had been transformed by the Holy Spirit. He had been empowered by the Holy Spirit. But here is another very important insight to our relationship with the Holy Spirit. He didn't continue with the Holy Spirit. He had this over-the-top, highlight, mountaintop experience, to be sure. But you know, one thing I've noticed about over-the-top, highlight, mountaintop experiences is that their shelf life is probably about four or five hours. Maybe you've had some of those at a camp, at a retreat, at a get-together, conference. Everybody just kind of gets whipped up into this emotional frenzy and you're telling God, okay, I'm going to be a missionary in Serbia and Africa. Oh, Lord, I'll never stray again. God, I'm going to do away with this. And I'm going to do away with that. And I'm going to just devote my life to serving You. And then the next day dawns. And you're like, did I say something to God last night? I can't really remember. You know why that happens? It's not because God hasn't genuinely done a work. It's because no work of God is ever intended in your life to be the be-all and end-all of your walk with God. God just doesn't want you to have a few highlights on your personal highlight reel that you show over and over again. God wants to do a new work in you daily. In the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, God says that His mercies are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. Why do God's mercies have to be new every morning? Here's a big hint. We need them new every morning. You can't live on yesterday's manna, can you? You can't live on yesterday's spiritual highlight. One of the most important questions that I think we can ever ask in the Christian life is this. What has God done in me lately? What have I allowed Him to do in me lately? Not way back when. Not when I went forward at an altar call. Not when I gave my life to Jesus Christ. What has God done today in my life? How have I walked with the Lord today? What's your relationship with God like today? In the book of Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, the famous passage that says, Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. That term, to be filled with the Spirit in the original language is an intensive form of the Greek that can literally be translated, Be ye constantly being filled with the Holy Spirit. Some people will say, do you believe in a second experience with the Holy Spirit after salvation, after the Lord indwells you? Yes, absolutely. I believe in a second experience. I believe in what is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I believe that the Holy Spirit is to come upon us in power. But I don't think that's the last encounter with the Holy Spirit that we should have. Do I believe in a second experience with the Holy Spirit? Sure I do. But I sure also believe in a third experience and a fourth experience and a fifth experience. And I need the filling of the Holy Spirit each and every day. Because I guarantee you, one thing I have learned the hard way is this. When I wake up in the morning, I realize that if I take my life into my own hands and try to live it out in my own strength, if I try to serve God in my own power, I guarantee you, I will make a smoking, flaming ruin of my life by no later than noon. It's me. Maybe you can get along a little bit longer. But sooner or later, we take our lives into our own hands. It's not going to work. It was never intended to work. Hey, you come to a service like this, you hear the Word, you go, oh, great, the Word of God's wonderful. Oh, man, I just feel like I'm really charged up. Be in the Word tomorrow. Be in the Word the next day. Keep those lines of communication between you and God open. That's the secret of a transformed life. A transformed life is when we live each and every day. You know, it only makes sense. In Alcoholics Anonymous circles, they really emphasize this. They tell you that you can't do anything about yesterday because you don't live there anymore. And you can't do anything about tomorrow because you don't live there yet. You don't even know if you've got a tomorrow. Today, one day at a time, is how you live with the Lord. How you walk with Him. Because this is the only day, gang, this is the only moment that we've got. God wants it. God wants us to walk with Him in it. 
Why is a transformed life so essential for ministry? You've got to have that transformed life. Oftentimes, I really get concerned when I hear people say, well, I invited Christ in my life, but I'm pretty much still the same old person. I'm like, whoa. If the living God, the true and living God, has taken up residency in you, how can you be the same old person? And it's so important for us to be able to share that God has transformed our life, that He is the one who's made us who we are. You see, that's the essence of ministry. Ministry isn't getting together and kind of having a, you know, halo polishing club. We get together and we kind of show off how spiritual we are with one another, how with it and how together we are, you know? I mean, churches were never intended to be Hall of Fames for holy people. They're intended to be hospitals for the hurting. And so when we share, we should share pretty much like the Apostle Paul shared. You know what his message was? 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, he said this, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern for those who are going to believe on Him for everlasting life. <laughs> you know what Paul's saying there? What Paul is saying is this, hey, if God can save me, He can save you. If God can straighten out the mess that is my life, there's hope for you too. See, it's the exact opposite of what the world looks at in terms of religion, in terms of what we think a relationship with God is all about. And you know, oftentimes I have found that it's not our standing up and boasting in our strength in the Lord that counts. Oftentimes it is sharing out of our brokenness and our weakness that really matters. It's being able to look at somebody else who's hurting and look them in the eye and say, you know, I can't even begin to understand what you're going through. But this is what the Lord did for me when I did a faith plan, when my life fell apart. This is how Christ put me back together. And this is the work He's continuing to do. So important to have that transformed life. And so, we need, if we're going to serve the Lord, first of all, the edification, that important lesson driven in our minds that we need to depend on the Lord and the Lord alone. Secondly, we need transformation through His Holy Spirit. God needs to do that work within our own hearts. But finally, God wants to do a work of confirmation. If God has really called you to something, He's not real subtle about His call on our lives. And I think that's an important thing to understand because I run into so many people that are sort of like, oh, I know God has this important thing for me, but man, if I blink, I'm going to miss it. You know, uh, if I don't jump on it when it's right there, then it's never going to be back again. I'm just going to sit on the shelf and gather dust for Jesus until He comes again. Now, God is far more interested in you participating with Him in His kingdom than you are in participating. And He'll go out of His way to make sure you don't miss it. Look what He did for Saul. Verse 17, it says, Then Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah and said to the children of Israel, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms and from those who oppressed you. But you today have rejected your God who Himself saved you from all your adversities and your tribulations. And you've said to Him, No, set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves by the Lord to, before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. And when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. When he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was chosen. And Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen, but they sought him, and he could not be found. Therefore they inquired of the Lord further, Has the man come here yet? And the Lord answered, There he is, hidden among the equipment. So they ran and brought him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any other people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? That there is no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king! <laughs> I think it's great. You know, interestingly, the Lord prefaces this selection of their king, this showing of the king that God selected, by saying, now understand this. This is what you wanted. I wanted to be king over you. You wanted a different deal. Here's your different deal. Here's what you get. And so, 
by the process of elimination, it comes down to Saul's family and it comes down to Saul and everybody's like, where is he? He's hiding in a basket. Like, don't call me. I don't want to be called. This is too hard. I don't, you know, have somebody else do this. Well, God wasn't going to let Saul out of his calling, whether Saul wanted to go or not. And, you know, this is a really important insight into the ministry that a lot of people just don't understand. J. Oswald Sanders wrote a book called Spiritual Leadership. And in it, he suggests, and I think there's a lot of biblical merit to this, that one of the surest signs that you've really been called by God to serve Him is that you will do your best to run away from it. If it's all cool and groovy and just the way you like it and everything else like that, then it's probably you. But he points to Moses. You know, Moses tried to do his thing his own way and it didn't work out, so Moses hot-footed out to the wilderness and God hunted him down. I mean, person after person in Scripture follows that same job description. You know, I, I, I see so many people these days who kind of get into ministry because they think it's a good gig. A lot of people come up to me and say, oh, you're a minister, huh? Oh, so uh, what do you do the other six days of the week? That sounds pretty good. Get up early, come up with a few thoughts, share them with the people, go back to bed. Yeah, I like that. That ministry thing, it sounds like a good deal. Other people look at ministry as a great way to get FaceTime with people. I mean, their ego gets massaged because they stand up and share things and people kind of look at them and take notes. And, and it all becomes for their glory. You know, they, they don't preach Jesus. They preach themselves or they preach their church. The French existentialist and atheist, at least until the end of his life, he gave his life to Christ apparently before he died. Albert Camus once said, but now too many climb onto the cross to be seen from a greater distance even if it means trampling somewhat on the one who's been hanging there so long. There's all kinds of people out there that look at ministry as their gig. And boy, I can't wait till I have my Lucite pulpit and, you know, my TV show. And, you know, I'm sitting around in the day glow set, you know, with the big pompadour and all that. I mean, that's their ambition. Let me tell you something. And I'm as serious as an undertaker when I tell you this. Personal ambition and the work of God are a deadly mix. I've seen more people destroyed because they thought that ministry could get them somewhere instead of looking at ministry as something, well, God, if you want this for me, that's fine. I mean, it doesn't get any more blunt than this. In Jeremiah 45 and verse 5, Jeremiah the prophet was speaking to a fellow named Baruch who was his scribe who had stood with him through thick and thin in the difficult times. And he said something that absolutely blows our minds even in this day. He said, do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them. It's nothing but trouble. When you start to want to have the big ministry or you want to have big people recognize you as being someone significant and important, you want to have people in the church go, oh, there's a real servant of God. You start serving for the attaboys instead of serving Jesus. Let me tell you something. The biggest danger you're going to face. You can get away with that throughout your whole life. But I guarantee you, at the end of the line, when you stand before the Lord at Judgment Day, you're going to come up and say, Lord, I did all these wonderful things for you. And wasn't it great that I was on your team? And we did this and this and this. And look how many people were touched and reached. And the Lord will say, yeah, but you didn't do it for me. You did it for you. All those people thought you were wonderful. All those people patted you on the back. Guess what? You're paid in full. And when you see what you could have had, the glories of heaven and the heavenly rewards that God has for us, and you see that you traded them for things that have faded away, at that point your heart's going to break. If you seek great things for yourself, don't seek them. Hey, Saul had one thing, right? He wasn't seeking those great things for himself. He was hiding in the baskets. But here he gets hustled in front of him. I mean, it's almost comical. He kind of hustled up and... You know, Samuel looks at him and probably kind of goes, oh, okay. Well, here's your king. There's nobody else like him. He's head and shoulders above everybody else. You wanted a king who looked good in front of other kings. There's your guy. And they all look at him and they go, long live the king. We're in it. We're committed to it. This is our guy. But notice something. Verse 25, Then Samuel explained to the people the behavior of royalty 
and wrote it in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his own house. Now, this explanation of the behavior of royalty is a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. And you can read this on your own time. We really don't have time to explore it. But God's regulation for kings that He gave to Moses was this. A king is not to serve himself. He's to serve the people. A king is not to feather his own nest and build up things for his own ego. He is to serve God. In fact, a king is always to have before him the scroll of the law of the Lord to remind him who is really calling the shots. You know, we tend to think of being in a position of authority as the ticket to easy street. Because in this world, the higher up you get, the more people you have underneath you doing things for you. But God's kingdom is truly turned upside down, isn't it? Because the higher up you get in the kingdom of God, the more people you have above you that you're serving. That's how the kingdom of God works. Verse 26, And Saul also went home to Gibeah, and valiant men went with him whose hearts God had touched. But some rebels said, How can this man save us? So they despised him and brought him no presents, but he held his peace. I think this is probably one of the most interesting examples of of the confirming work of God in terms of whether he's calling you to leadership or not. And, and I mean, this is a very deep and heavy principle, and I don't know if many of you will really be able to follow this because it is so intellectual, okay? So try to follow me here. The best way to figure out if you're a leader or not is to see if anyone's following. Is anybody following? And another question you need to ask is, anybody can kind of get a following going, but what kind of people are following your lead? Now, notice in this situation, because God had called them, because God had touched these people's hearts, these valiant men went with them. Because God said, I want you to follow him. Not because Saul was any great shakes. These are valiant men. The idea of valiancy there is the idea of men who are great in battle. Men of courage. Men of strength. Go-to guys. People you could count on when the going gets tough. They probably looked at this guy and go, he's hiding in the baskets? But God said, follow him. He's my guy. And that was enough for them. And the Scriptures commend them. But notice... The other side were the rebels. The rebels said, how can this man save us? You know what these rebels' problem was? They were looking for a man to save them. Not looking to God. The people who were looking to God followed Saul. The people who were looking to themselves and out for themselves and anywhere but the Savior rejected Him. And you know what? If you stand up to lead, understand this. As soon as you stand up and begin to lead in any significant way, If God uses you to lead in any particular ministry, you know what you get? You get like a t-shirt. You know, I run sometimes these 10 and and, uh, 10K races, 5K races. And, you know, one of the neat things you get out of that is a t-shirt, a commemorative t-shirt. You know what t-shirt you get when you decide to stand up and lead in the kingdom of God? It's a t-shirt that features on the front and on the back a bullseye. Because there are going to be people, as soon as you stand up and start to lead, who are going to say, well, you know what? I see the Lord in this and you know I want to support this person because I think God's doing a work. And there's going to be people who are going, well, I don't want to walk after the Lord. I kind of want my own thing. Why Him instead of me? And why isn't God doing this for me? And all this other stuff. And the jealousy begins to rage. And man, if you can't rise to someone's standard, you know how the world works. Bring someone down a few pegs. And you'll get both. You'll experience people who come alongside of you and kind of like Aaron and her with Moses, want nothing else but to keep your hands lifted to God in the midst of the battle. And you will come across other people who will come to you and want nothing else but to tear you down. That's why, gang, one of the most important lessons in ministry you can ever learn is this. Do whatever you do as unto the Lord. Do whatever you do as unto God, as serving Him. Is God calling you to work with kids? Realize when you work with those kids, you're ministering to Jesus Christ. Is God calling you, perhaps, to take a step out in personal evangelism? 
Understand that every person you share with who doesn't know the Lord is someone whom Jesus Christ died for. He loves them. Love them too. Do whatever you do is under the Lord. If you're a husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Not because she deserves it, but because Jesus told you to do it. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Not because he's the greatest spiritual leader you've ever met. Probably far from it. But because Jesus said to do it. Because you trust him. Whatever you do in ministry, do it as unto the Lord. And understand this. This is maybe the most profound lesson in ministry I have ever learned. It happened the first time that I had the opportunity to speak for Chuck Smith at Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa. I was brand new on staff. Nobody really knew me. I didn't know very many people. But I had struck up a relationship with a fellow named Dave Rolfe, who was the head of the Christian school there. He and I went to the same seminary, and he had that sarcastic sense of humor that I've grown to appreciate so much over the years. And, you know, we just seemed to hit it off. And so he was going to introduce me to people because Chuck Smith was gone. And so he was kind of running the show on the service. I was just going to give the message. And he came up to do the offering. And it was the most unique offering I think I've ever heard in all my experiences in ministry. He stood up and it was like an anti-offering. He goes, well, we're going to do an offering right now, but boy, if you know you don't want to give, then absolutely don't give. In fact, if you've got any hesitations at all, just keep your money to yourself, you know. I mean, God doesn't want your money. He, doesn't, he isn't after you to shake you down. And he's just going on and on like, whoa, man, I wonder what their offerings are like around here. And he goes, you know, when we give to the Lord... When we do anything for the Lord, it's kind of like when I'm out in the garage working on the car. And my five-year-old comes out and he wants to help me out. And he climbs up on my lap and he gets his hands all over the grease and the oil. and He thinks he's doing a great job, but really he's just kind of slowing me down. You know, It's harder to work with him there. But there's a reason he's there. Not because he's helping me in the work, but because... He wants to be with me. And so, I let him get in the way and I let him think he's important and the job takes twice as long. But we're together. And you know, when we serve the Lord, that's exactly what happens. <laughs> we think we're so important. We think that without us, it's not going to get done and we're just getting our hands all over the grease and making this big mess. <laughs> and God smiles and says, Oh, it's my son. Oh, it's my daughter. Isn't it neat they want to be with me? Don't ever forget that lesson. God doesn't need you. But He chooses to give you the privilege of serving with Him. Of doing the things that He's involved with. Oh, may the Lord write that on our hearts and give us fruitful ministry. Not because we have to, but because we get to. Not to earn our or deserve our merit with God, but because... We are accepted with Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You that in this picture of how You called Saul, a guy who we look upon and seems shaky from start to finish, it kind of gives us hope because really, isn't that us? We're really honest. We don't have a whole lot to bring to this party. But Lord, it just blows my mind that we could go through a passage like this where we understand that that serving You is really Your way of serving us and Your way of changing our hearts and bringing us to that greater degree of dependency. Lord, You served us. And Lord, tonight, as we partake of communion, as we remember Your ultimate service to us, how You're willing for Your body to be broken and Your blood to be shed, 